Welcome back to the Evening Under Lamplight podcast with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson, as we look today at Canto 13 of Dante's Inferno, a canto that covers one whole region, the ring within the circle of violence, dedicated to those who have been violent against themselves. And remember, in Dante's culture, your possessions are part of your identity, so if you damage or ruin your property, you're in the same psychological state as someone who harms the body or kills the body. Well, let's jump right in with what happens in this canto. The canto begins right where canto 12 ended, as though there has been no break between cantos, another technique Dante uses to vary the pace of the narrative. At the end of the previous canto, you'll remember, Dante had just been carried over the river of boiling blood on the back of the centaur Nessus, who, as soon as he dropped Dante on the farther shore, turned around and returned to his place on the other side. Dante and Virgil now move on from the river, and, and sooner than it takes Nessus to reach the other shore, the two travellers have come into a forest. Unlike the dark forest at the beginning of the Inferno, where Dante had lost the right path, here there's no path at all, just a confusion of, of, of what? Dead trees, it appears. Trees, or perhaps just bushes of assorted sizes, with thorns, devoid of life, the leaves not green but a dark dead colour, all the branches twisted into grotesque shapes, and no fruit, just the thorns, poisonous thorns, Dante tells us. As if these deadly trees aren't bad enough, there's the added presence nesting up in the branches of the harpies, more hybrid creatures, part bird, part woman, woman's features from the neck up, but bird-like wings, feathered chests, taloned feet. In classical mythology, they were demons who prophesied doom, whether accurately or not, it doesn't seem to matter to them. And here in this dead wood, Dante can hear them wailing, the kind of wailing full of despair, foretelling disaster, disgrace, dire disappointment up ahead. Pay close attention here, Virgil says. You're going to see things that you wouldn't believe if I only told you about them. And then... Alongside of the harpies wailing, Dante becomes aware of doleful moanings coming from somewhere. Human voices, but where are the people? Are they up there in the branches with the harpies? Virgil, who by this time pretty easily can read Dante's thoughts, tells him to break off a twig from the branch of one of these bushes, and he'll find out where the moaning is coming from. And so Dante breaks off a twig and, and immediately hears from the bush the cry, Why are you tearing me? Have a little pity, please. We look like trees and bushes now, but we were once human beings. What is going on? Well, it's like when you put a green log into the fire and the sap oozes out, bubbles out rather, from one end, hissing and whistling, so here, at the point where the branch was broken, blood, not sap, is bubbling out, and along with the blood come the words. Look, Virgil says to the tree, I didn't really want to hurt you, but he wouldn't have believed me if I just told him that you trees had once been human beings. He had to find out for himself. Sorry, sorry you were the one who he had to find it out on. To make it up to you, 
Tell him your name and your story so he can bring news of you when he returns to the land of the living. Thank you for the kind words, the branch says. I served the Emperor Frederick II, holding the keys to his heart so that I was privy to all his secrets and kept them secret from almost everyone. But I paid the price for such a high office. Envy, always present in places of power, stirred my enemies to turn the Emperor's heart against me, and I was cast out of his favour. I killed myself then rather than face the disfavour all around me. But I swear to you that those charges were untrue. I was always faithful to my lord. If you are indeed going back to the world above, tell them from me that I was innocent. If you have any further questions for him, Virgil says to Dante, go ahead and ask, but don't waste time on trivial questions. I'm too full of pity to question him, Dante replies. You ask him for me. You know what's on my mind. And so Virgil asks him to explain how all these souls came to be here as dead trees. And then there comes the sound of blowing wind from out of the wounded branch, which soon turns into articulate words. When, after we kill ourselves, our soul is separated from the body, and after Minos up there condemns us to this circle, then we sort of float on down, down to this place, and land at random somewhere or other here, and take root and spring up into a tree or bush, and then those harpies come and feed on whatever leaves we have, ripping them off, exposing broken twigs just like you've done, and out of those broken ends we express our pain with moans and groans. On the last day, when the souls of everyone are united with their bodies, we won't be allowed to do that, since we willfully tore our souls from our bodies. Instead, the bodies will just be left to hang on our branches, on show and useless. Dante and Virgil have been listening and are waiting for anything else the tree might have to say when their attention is diverted by the sound of dogs furiously barking and branches being broken as though someone is rushing around amid the trees and bushes. And, and yes, suddenly, two souls come running past them, naked, with flesh ripped, since they're so panicked they just run right through the thorns. One of them runs right into a bush, trying to hide, but the dogs who have been chasing him get hold of him and rip him to pieces and, and run off with the bits of him in their mouth. The bush he had been trying to hide behind has been broken in several places by this encounter and now starts moaning. Why do I have to suffer because you've been condemned to go through this chase? Can you tell us who you were? Virgil asks. He replies, only obliquely identifying himself as someone who had hanged himself in his house in Florence, that city that Mars, the god of war, is always tormenting. Then he asks them to gather up the leaves that were broken off and scattered when the dogs attacked, and pile them at the foot of the bush. And on that note, the canto ends. The canto can be divided into four sections, the harpies, Pierre de la Vigne, who's not identified, but it has not been hard to recognize this historical figure, more on him later, the profligates, whose identity we discover in passing, and the unknown Florentine suicide. 
There are two explicit references in this canto back to Virgil's Aeneid, the harpies who assaulted Aeneas and his men, trying to persuade them to quit their mission, and the action of breaking a branch as a way to get the spirit in the tree to talk. Virgil, then, is present here in a dual capacity, and the poet Dante is gracefully paying tribute to the ancient poet he regards as his master. Virgil says that Dante wouldn't have believed that a dead soul turned into a tree could actually speak through a broken twig. He couldn't believe this just from having read about such a thing in my book, Virgil says. He had to experience it for himself. Is this a message to us too? We can't believe all these things we're reading about in the Inferno unless we experience them ourselves. No, not on the literal level. We're not going to see centaurs patrolling rivers of boiling blood, for instance. But we're asked to experience it on a different level. That is, we're asked to find examples of these moments in our own life. That's why we must keep looking at the way these descriptions of Dante's express on this surreal level the psychological states we find daily within ourselves and in the world around us. Otherwise, it's just a dead poem, isn't it? Now, let's look at the first episode, our introduction to this dead forest, and I think we should pause to consider how, how eerie this scene is. A few cantos ago, when Dante came into the region of the heretics, he was aware of the eerie emptiness there. No one was around. There was only the sound of lamentation. Well, it's a similar thing here. Nobody to be seen, but I think the dead bushes make it eerier, and even more so to see those harpies with their despairing voices high up in the trees. And then it becomes positively spooky when the tree, or bush, it's not really clear, begins to speak through the blood hissing out of the broken branch. <laughs> this is the kind of frightful scene I suppose we expect in a story set in hell. But what about these harpies? Their haunting voices of doom are right there in the branches, representing, we might say, the voices that had led these souls to their self-harming or suicide, those inner voices of despair and self-hatred that keep saying, you're no good, this'll never succeed, things will only get worse. There's no point going on any further. Why not just end it now? We all hear these voices at some time or other, but if we retain the good of our intellect, we know that these voices are just temptations, and no matter how strongly they draw us on, we must resist them. We today, however, recognize that such voices can overwhelm us and throw us into such a condition of psychosis that we no longer have the power to resist and cannot be held responsible for our actions, which are out of our control. Any harm we do is not willful and thus not a sin. Dante might say that we should have resisted the voices when they first began, but that's another story. The problem with listening to these voices counselling defeat and giving up is that you are ignoring the wheel of fortune, which is always moving. Things look bleak now, but if we've understood the workings of fortune, we know that things will change, and perhaps for the worse, but you never know. To end your life because you cannot see any way out is not so much a sin of self-hatred as a sin against fortune, thinking that you can shape the course of your life instead of the divine wisdom, 
which works through Dame Fortune. Even if things are getting worse, there might always be something you can do besides ending it all. <laughs> Look after all at Dante, who lost his native city, his home, his money, his family, his power, or, and his reputation at home, thrown into exile, dependent on others' charity to get by from day to day, and yet he did not give up, no, no matter how loud the harpy voices may have been crying into his ear. But instead he kept on, and produced, out of this adversity, one of the greatest pieces of literature in the world. You never know what the fruit of your adversity will turn out to be. And perhaps we can say that this was the problem with Pierre de Lavigne. The wheel of fortune cast him from the second highest position in the realm down into disgrace and prison. According to his story, it was all the fault of envy. Like Francesca, he blames some abstract quality for his fates. Francesca blames love. He blames envy. And also, like Francesca, he reshapes his story to his credit, omitting many details. He blames his mind for forcing him to kill himself. Why did he kill himself? Well, he says it was through a kind of disdainful, scornful desire to avoid scorn. Was, was, was he then trying to avoid the shame and humiliation of people lording it over him? Was he perhaps thinking he might awaken public sympathy for him once he was gone? Or maybe he was motivated by a kind of classical ideal of killing oneself like a good Roman rather than face dishonorable defeat. This Roman connection might have some basis, since he refers to Frederick II once as Caesar and another time as Augustus. He certainly had no Christian orientation in all this. He says he was faithful to his Lord, but he means Frederick, not the Lord God. In fact, you may recall that Frederick was a heretic to be found with Farinata in the tomb with the materialists, and like the Roman emperors, he had himself declared divine. This adds idolatry to the other sins. Maybe poor Pierre de Lavigne thought like the pre-Christian Romans, that suicide had no consequences since there was no afterlife. But unlike the Romans, he should have known better. He had the truth of the immortality of the soul being taught all around him. But however we see his motive for killing himself, it's quite plain that he simply could not face the situation he found himself in, and rejected the life that had been given him. And what he does not tell us, but I think Dante could assume his readers knew, is that Pierre was accused of embezzling from the treasury about the year 1248, and was blinded and put into prison, where he killed himself by, and I, and I find this almost impossible to imagine, by dashing his head against the wall. It seems that Dante the poet probably thought he was innocent, he might also have had sympathy for Pierre as a noted poet of his day. And maybe that's why Dante in the poem feels pity for him. But being charged for a crime you did not commit does not excuse ending your life. By the way, by the way, scholars have fairly recently discovered that Pierre de Lavigne had indeed been guilty of embezzling, but that's irrelevant to our reading of the poem. And yet, 
there's a certain nobility in Pierre de Levigny, in his elegant way of speaking, and in his catastrophic fall from power, perhaps also in his taking matters into his own hands and killing himself rather than letting his enemies have their way with him. Like his treatment of Francesca and Farinata, Dante presents a complex character that raises some ambivalent responses in us. Hell must be like that, I suppose. But then there's the sudden shift from the relative stillness of the voice bubbling out of the broken branch to the rapid and noisy movement of the two runners who burst upon the scene. Who are they? What did they do? They represent the profligates, people who are violent against their own property. We discussed last time the difference between the frenzied anger of the souls fighting in the river Styx, guilty of a sin of intemperance, and the malicious anger of those condemned in the river Phlegathon, deliberately intending to hurt others. And here we see a similar difference between the spendthrifts in the third circle, who intemperately wasted a lot of money, and the profligates here, who deliberately wreck their fortune. One of the runners is called Lano. His full name was Arcolano Marconi, a member of a a member of a club of rich young men in Siena who called themselves, in the careless arrogance of rich young men, the Spendthrift Brigade, in the company of whom Lano deliberately ran through all his inheritance. Desperate now, and probably listening to the harpies wailing in his ears, he joined a military force, resigned to dying in battle. When the battle seemed lost, most of the soldiers retreated, but Lano stayed on the field and was killed. Was this suicide? Well, apparently not. He, he's not a dead thornbush, and he technically did not kill himself. He might have survived the fighting. But he was famous for the way he deliberately set himself to throw away his whole fortune. That was his violence against himself. The other runner is Jacopo da Sant'Andrea from Padua, who was known, among other things, for setting several cottages on his property on fire as a kind of interesting spectacle to delight his guests one evening. In our world, I suppose, this kind of profligacy might be seen in someone who is showing off to his friends by driving fast along a windy road and then smashes his expensive car. What does he care? He'll buy another one or someone who has his face tattooed with obscene images and hateful slogans. Someone who tries to do the tattooing himself and ends up with ridiculous, poorly executed tattoos would also fall into this category, wouldn't he? What about someone who earns, say, 500 pounds a week and goes out and spends 50 pounds a night at the pub buying drinks for himself and everyone else all evening, or who puts 100 pounds out of his 500 on the lottery? We are given our money, as well as our property, not to mention our bodies, not to mention our life itself, as a kind of trust, not to squander, but to look after and make use of, especially in the service of others. Dante assumes that we all know this, even if only in theory. But behind all this squandering is the kind of despair the harpies specialize in a despair that feels there is nothing worth doing in life, so we might as well just throw it all away. We're running naked through the thorns, which rip us, but we don't care. 
we're being chased by these vicious dogs of self-destruction who just tear us apart to the accompaniment of the harpies' wails up in the branches. And finally, there is that anonymous Florentine suicide. What strikes me here is his self-pity. We hear him moaning to Jacopo, who tried to hide among his thorny branches, but who is no longer there to hear him, since the torn bits of his body have been carried away by the dogs. The suicide complains, Why do I have to suffer because of your guilty life? No sympathy, of course, for this person just mauled to pieces by the dogs. He just feels sorry for himself, for all those leaves broken off during the fray. He asks these two passers-by to gather the leaves and pile them at the foot of his bush, that miserable bush, he says, as though, <laughs> as though implying, Look how miserable I am already. You don't want me to be even more upset with my leaves scattered all about the place, do you? and more self-pity, perhaps, as he tells them he comes from Florence, that place of perpetual fighting, as though that might raise our pity all the more. Self-pity and despair are closely allied, and as we see here, they can be symptoms or, or causes of self-hatred and violence to oneself. And then that kind of throwaway final line, I made a gibbet, a hanging place for me, out of my own house. In other words, he hanged himself in his house, desecrating his property at the same time as he killed his body and rejected the life he'd been given. Let us end with this little commentary Dorothy Sayers gives us here. Florence, she says, seems to have had a kind of suicide wave about Dante's time. His son Jacopo observes that it is a special vice of the Florentines to hang themselves. Just as, he says, just as the people of Arezzo are given to throwing themselves down wells. Well, let's end there. Come back next time when things get even more horrible. See you then.